If you're visiting with us, I just want to welcome you again to Redeemer Church. We are we're really excited to see you and would love to get to know you better. We have some visitor cards in the back table next to the giving box, and, and that would be a great way for us to get to know you and be able to follow up with you. And so uh, before you leave today, if you would fill one of those out and just drop it in that giving box in the back, we would love to know how, to, how we can pray for you, how we can minister to you, and we're, we're so glad you're with us today. Uh, I want to begin the message this morning by asking this question. What is the most significant battle being fought in the world today? What's the most significant battle being fought in the world today? You might immediately answer, it's the battle against COVID-19. We might say, it's the battle against social injustice. We might say, it's the battle between religious liberty and sexual liberty. We might say it's the battle between pro-life and pro-choice. The battle between fake news and real news. The battle between Republicans and Democrats. The battle between democracy and communism. All of these battles are going on in the world today, and, and they're all significant. They're all significant to one degree or another, but they are not the most significant battle in the world today. The most significant battle being fought in the world today is the battle between the kingdom of Satan and the church of Jesus Christ. The most significant battle being fought in the world today is the battle between the kingdom of Satan and the church of Jesus Christ. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're looking at verses 10 through 18 this morning. We are entering into the last few weeks of our series through this book that we've been calling One in Christ. And I just want to summarize where we've been so far. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out the saving realities of the grace of God. By His grace, God has blessed us by uniting us to Jesus Christ. When we were dead in our sin, He made us alive by His grace. By His grace, He has made us a part of His family, Christ's body, the church. And this is all His gift to us. We didn't earn any of it. We don't deserve any of it. But it's by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to His glory alone. That's the message of Ephesians 1-3, through 3, that, that God has united us to Christ, in Him He is uniting all things, by His grace. And every blessing of the gospel comes to us through this union with Christ by the grace of God. It's, it's not what we do. The gospel is not what we do. But it's what God has done for us. And we receive his salvation in Christ as a gift. And then in chapter 4, in the middle point of the book, Paul, Paul then says, Therefore, in light of what God has done for you, in light of Christ's death for your sins and resurrection, in light of the grace you've received, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He turns his attention to how we should live in light of God's grace. And the order is so important. It's not live this way to earn God's grace. It's because God has been gracious to you, live this way. Receive his gift and respond by living for his glory. And he uses the word walk over and over again, meaning live your life this way. And he says walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in unity. Walk in holiness. Walk in love. Walk as lights in this world. Walk in wisdom. Walk in your marriages, in your families, in your workplaces. Walk for the glory in all of your life. Because of the grace of God. And over the last several months, Paul has just given us this comprehensive vision for what the Christian life looks like. It's been so good for us to, to meditate on how we can walk in light of God's grace in our day-to-day -day out lives as, as His people, as families in this world. 
now we are entering into the final major section of the book. We've got a few weeks left in this book, and, and today the metaphor shifts from walking to standing. Let's read our passage this morning, and, and I just want you to notice the emphasis Paul places on standing firm. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is our text this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In this final section of the book of Ephesians, the Lord reminds us that if we are in Christ, then we are in a war. If we are in Christ, then we are in a war. We are in a spiritual war against the kingdom of Satan. And Christ's instructions to us are clear. Paul says it four different ways. Verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Verse 13, having done all, to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. The call of this passage this morning is that we would stand firm in the face of spiritual warfare. That we would not fall when our enemy attacks. That we would stand our ground against the opposition of Satan. And what we're going to see this morning is that there are three things that we need to know in order to stand firm. If we're going to stand firm in spiritual warfare, then we need to know our enemy know our resources, and know the outcome. If we're going to stand firm in spiritual warfare, we need to know three things, our enemy, our resources, and the outcome. And so let's dive into the text. First, we need to know our enemy. If we're going to stand firm in the face of spiritual warfare, we need to know our enemy. Who is our enemy in this war? In verse 11, Paul tells us, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is our enemy. If you are a follower of Christ, then you are an enemy of Satan. Now when you think of Satan, if you're like me, then maybe the very first image that might appear in your mind is of a little red man on your shoulder with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Church, we should not make light of our enemy like this. Here's what the Bible says about Satan. Satan is a powerful spiritual creature. He's a creature. He is not infinite, but he's powerful. He's spiritual, not a physical being. He's a fallen angel who hates the glory of God, and therefore he hates the people of God. He first appears as a crafty serpent in the Garden of Eden. He disguises himself, Scripture says, as an angel of light. In reality, Peter tells us that he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus himself said that Satan comes to steal, 
and to kill and to destroy. This is, this is a brief sketch of who Satan is in Scripture. But further, Satan does not work alone. He's not a rogue fallen angel on his own, but rather he is the ruler of a host of fallen angels who joined him in his rebellion against the glory of God. We see this in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a whole realm of demonic spiritual forces that follow Satan. Here's how one commentator summarizes what we read in verse 12. He says, There is an organized, structured, powerful, malignant opposition that is provoked by the devil against God's church. Let's say that again. A powerful, organized, structured, malignant opposition that's provoked by the devil against God's church. We are truly at war against the kingdom of Satan. This is who our enemy is. Now, now what is their strategy? What is the strategy of Satan? And what is the strategy of the spiritual forces of evil? Well, our passage gives us a hint. It says uh, at, the, at verse 11, to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil has schemes. Not only is he powerful, he's strategic. Jesus called him the father of lies. You know, he doesn't come at us like a recognizably evil figure. He doesn't come at us like some lumbering ogre that we should run away from. But again, as an angel of light, Satan works off of lies and deception. He places truly compelling temptations in front of you. He searches out your weaknesses, and he aims his lies where you are most vulnerable. This picture becomes even clearer in verse 13, in verse 11, we stand against the devil's schemes. In verse 13, he says that you may be able to, may be able to withstand in the evil day. What, what is the evil day referring to? Commentators give a couple options, and I don't think I actually have to choose between them. They're both true. Uh, it's true that, that there's a future day coming immediately prior to Christ's return when Satan's activity against the church is going to become unprecedentedly intense. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul's getting at here. I think Paul's referring here to the fact that each one of us will come into a particular moment in our lives, maybe multiple moments, where it seems like the stars of spiritual warfare perfectly align. Where we are particularly vulnerable when Satan, who has been prowling, is ready to pounce. Each one of us will face the evil day in our own lives. It's possible that some of you are facing the evil day right now. It's, it's, it's a day when you are vulnerable to Satan's schemes. And when he is rationing the warfare up against you and against your home, against your life. And when that day comes on each one of us, we must be ready to withstand the devil's schemes and stand firm in Christ. Now, before we look at the resources God provides to us to do this, I want to pause here and ask a very important question. Do you believe all this? Do you believe all this? You know, church, if we were to travel to other parts of the world, you know what we'd find? There's a much greater awareness of the spiritual realm than we have here in our culture. We have adopted a sort of unspoken compromise between supernaturalism and naturalism. 
We, 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 we as believers, have not just uh, gone full into naturalism, denying God. We still, we still believe the major things. We believe in God. We believe in heaven. We believe in hell. We believe in sin. We believe in major spiritual realities. But it seems to me like we don't believe as strongly in things like angels or demons or the devil or spiritual warfare. We almost might be embarrassed to say we believe in these things because we've so bought into the naturalism of our culture. So, so, so we keep the majors, but we, but we don't talk about the, the secondary things. But, but, but church, there's, there's no more dangerous enemy than an enemy you don't believe is real. From the opening chapters of the Bible to the final chapters of the Bible, the entire story of redemption involves the activity of Satan against the people of God. It's in Genesis 1, it's in Revelation 19. Genesis 3, Revelation 19. From beginning to end, Satan's activity is part of the story of Scripture. Jesus spoke of Satan's activity on numerous occasions, and he himself was tempted by him. Think about the, the writers of the New Testament. Paul, Peter, James, John. These are the ones who wrote the epistles. All of them warn us about Satan's opposition in their letters. It's all over the Bible. Satan and the spiritual realm is throughout Scripture. Satan is our enemy. If you believe in the Trinity, if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you believe in eternal life and eternal judgment, if you believe in justification by faith, then you must believe in angels and demons. You must believe that we are at war with the kingdom of Satan. We need to know our enemy, church. We have an enemy. He is raging against God, and therefore he is raging against us. And he is crafty and deceptive and prowls around seeking someone to destroy. We need to be ready to stand firm. And so therefore, that's the second point, we need to know our resources. If we are going to stand firm against this enemy, we need to know our resources. The good news of this morning's passage is that God provides us with everything we need for the spiritual warfare we are facing. He provides us with everything we need to withstand the devil and his schemes. Let's just look at what he provides for us. First, God provides us with strength. Look at verse 10 with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How many of you know who Andre the Giant is? Is that name familiar, Daniel? Yeah, a few, few of you. How many have seen The Princess Bride? All right. Andre the Giant's the giant in that movie, all right? Rather known from that or from his wrestling career. But, but the point is, why was he called Andre the Giant? Because he was a giant. He was a giant. And like I said, he was a wrestler. So what I want you to do is imagine with me that you are in the ring about to face Andre the Giant. And this is real wrestling. It's not entertainment. It's, you're really going to fight him. I, I'm in the corner. I'm your trainer. The bell rings. And I'm behind to say, be strong. Be strong. Okay, if you're smart, you're not going to listen to me. You're, you're going to grab that towel as fast as you can and throw it into the ring. The reality, according to Scripture, is that we are incredibly weak, and Satan is much stronger than we are. We are not equals with Satan. He is a powerful spiritual creature. Just think about the havoc that Satan wreaked in Job's life. Remember the book of Job, and, 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 and we see the limitation because Satan has to ask God for permission to do what he does. But still, God gives Satan permission. And here's what 
Satan does to Job. Satan was able to bring an army to strike down all of his servants. Satan was able to bring fire from heaven to consume all of his livestock. Satan was able to bring a tornado to kill all of his children. And Satan was able to bring sores to cover Job's entire body. Now, can you do any one of those things? No, we, we are utterly helpless before someone as powerful as Satan. He is much stronger than we are. But you know what? Paul doesn't say in this verse, be strong. He doesn't just say, be strong. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are weak. Satan is strong. But Jesus is stronger. We read it early this morning in Colossians. When Jesus died and rose again, he triumphed over the spiritual powers of darkness. He put them to open shame, is what we read. And remember back in Ephesians 1, here's what Paul said in Ephesians 1, that God has raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Satan is raging against us, and left to ourselves, we don't stand a chance, but we are not left to ourselves. Jesus has full authority and power over the kingdom of Satan, and therefore Paul can say to us, be strong in the Lord. If you believe in Jesus, then God has united you to Jesus, and he has provided you with the strength you need, the strength of the risen and reigning Christ to withstand the attacks of Satan. And so practically, if you are in Christ, what this means is you don't need to fear this enemy. We don't need to live in fear of Satan. We don't need to live in fear of demons or of spiritual warfare. We can be strong in the Lord. We must be courageous and enter in to this warfare knowing that Jesus is stronger. We're weak, but Jesus is strong. And he loves to show his strength through our weakness. So do not fear. Be strong in the Lord. God provides us with strength. But not only that, God provides us with protection. He provides us with, with protection. Paul calls us to put on the whole armor of God. That is the armor that God himself provides. This has become a famous metaphor. I don't even remember when I first heard about the armor of God. I, I'm sure there was a time in my life when I, when I dressed up in the armor of God for uh, going trick-or-treating or something like that. It's, it's, it's well-known. It's famous. I want to look at each piece of the armor Paul describes here, but before we look at each piece he describes, I want to give a disclaimer that is that we should not overinterpret this passage. We shouldn't overinterpret this passage. What I mean is we shouldn't pull more out of what Paul says here than he wants us to pull out of what he says. I've read whole books about how to put on each piece of the armor. And the authors try to draw these really tight connections between what, what this piece did for a soldier and what it does for us spiritually, where, where putting on the armor becomes this additional daily task for the Christian life. So, so, so you've you got to read your Bible, you've got you to pray, and then you've got to put on the armor every single day, piece by piece. I think at that point we were actually allegorizing this passage. This, this is a rich, vivid metaphor that's intended to teach us a simple point. And here's the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us comprehensive protection against the schemes of Satan. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us comprehensive protection against the schemes of Satan. Now let's look at the, the pieces one at a time and see 
how this truth comes out of that. First, we are to put on the belt of truth. As we said earlier, Satan is the father of lies. One of the ways that Satan seeks to devour you is by causing you to deny the truth. That is, to deny the faith. To deny the gospel. And that he, he can come at this in a variety of ways. Just recently, many of you know, there's a well-known pastor who denied the faith on the basis of the Bible's teaching on sexuality. But it doesn't have to be something like that. It could be denial of other essential doctrines as well. You deny the deity of Christ. You deny the reality of hell. You deny that we're justified by faith alone. To put on the belt of truth is, is a call to, to embrace the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. To stand firm in that faith against the devil's deceptions. Because, and you know it. You know there are moments when you think about what do we believe as Christians and and. and it doesn't always jive with us, right? You think about the eternality of hell. We don't always want to believe that. But that's part of the faith. And, and Satan wants to attack us there and wants, wants us to, to doubt those truths. We need to put on the belt of truth, embrace the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. Second, we are to wear the breastplate of righteousness. You know, one of Satan's primary tactics against believers is to accuse us. He is the accuser of the brethren. He wants to tell us that we are not really accepted by God, that God doesn't really love us, that we haven't really believed, that we aren't really secure in Christ. And to put on the breastplate of righteousness protects us from these accusations. We, we, we really did this earlier, as we stand before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within... What do I do? I don't, I don't say, I'm not guilty, you're, you're lying. No, I say, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. We say to his accusations, you're right. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm guilty. But Jesus died for my sins. I've been given his righteousness. Your accusations cannot stand. We put on the breastplate of righteousness to, to protect ourselves against this tactic that, that he wants us to believe we are not loved, we are not accepted, we have more to do. None of it's true. It's a lie. The breastplate of righteousness protects us from these lies. A third would wear the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You know, if Satan can't destroy you, if he can't, if he can't manage to, to completely derail you from the faith, then he can at least try to discourage you from making an impact for the kingdom of God. This is, this is one of Satan's greatest efforts is to sideline Christians. Satan can tempt us to believe that God can't use us that our sin disqualifies us, that we won't be effective. But when we put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, what was happening is that we are remembering that we are those who have been given peace with God and peace in this world through the gospel. We say in last week, it is well, and we, and, and we, we realize the connection between peace with God and peace in this world. We have peace with God because Christ has borne our sins. There's, we are reconciled to Him. He's taken it in, in whole on the cross. And therefore, no matter what's happening in this life, we have peace. And, and with that kind of peace, that makes us people that are ready to take the gospel forward. And, and as Satan seeks to discourage us, we remember God has established His peace with me, and He has established peace in this world no matter what I might face. So I'm ready to move forward with the gospel. 
Fourth, we're to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And here is where I think we begin to see that, that Paul is painting a comprehensive picture. It's not so much that each piece of the armor represents one particular thing in your life, because look, this is, this is all the flaming darts of the evil one. And we're to take it up in all circumstances. We need the shield of faith all the time for all of his attacks. Church, how do we fight back when Satan attacks us? Like, practically, what should we do? Should we enter into dialogue with the devil? Should, should we enter into prayers of rebuke to the devil? I don't think so. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Peter says, resist the devil, firm in the faith. We resist Satan not by engaging Satan, but by drawing near to God in faith. We run to the Lord. He is our shield. God is the one who extinguishes the flaming darts. As we draw near to God in faith, Satan flees. We run to him, church. Fifth, we are to put on the helmet of salvation. And again, this is a comprehensive picture, isn't it? When, we, when Satan attacks us with his lies, we remember all these rich truths from Ephesians and from the Scripture. By grace, you have been saved through faith. You remember that God has saved you and that he will save you, and it protects you from his schemes and his attacks. And finally, we are given one true weapon in this protective armor. We are given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We think about the sword of the Spirit, it is at one level protective. It, it, it helps us to defend ourselves against Satan. Jesus showed us exactly how when he was tempted by the devil. He shows us how to wield this sword. When, when Satan tempted him, what did Jesus say every time? It is written. It is written. Jesus was ready with the word of God on his heart and on his lips to fight back with this sword. Church, let me just ask you, what temptations are you most vulnerable to? Just think about that for a second. Where, where are you weakest to temptation? What scriptures do you need to study, memorize, and internalize so that you can wield the sword of the Spirit when Satan tempts you? What do you need to be able to say, it is written when Satan tempts you? We've been given a sword in these moments. Now, I think that we can also say that this sword at, at, at some level does also apply at an, in an offensive way as we, as we advance the gospel against the kingdom of Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's speaking there and he tells us that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So, so, so we know from Ephesians that we, are, we, we were followers of Satan before God saved us. And, and Satan, as people follow him, he keeps them from seeing the truth. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. But what did Paul do with that reality? He said, we openly state the truth. We do not tamper with the word of God. We proclaim Jesus Christ. He, he proclaims the word, and God himself unblinds the minds of unbelievers when we do that. Satan cannot withstand the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with this sword. Church, God has provided us with protection. He has provided us with spiritual armor for spiritual battle. And what we've seen in these various pieces is that they are all various facets of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is rich. We've seen that in Ephesians. It's, it's, it's not just this, this simple 
thing. It is there's so many facets, so many ways that it encourages us and equips us and helps us. And, and what he's calling us to do in this passage, to, to put on the armor of God, is not some distinct step you need to add to your daily routine. No, it is to immerse yourself in the gospel of God. Think about the richness of the gospel by, by immersing yourself in the scriptures and letting the scriptures lead you to know Christ more, to know what Christ has done for you more, to meditate on these things, on the truth of the faith and on, on the, the righteousness we've been given and on the strength of Christ, on the peace we have. These are all facets of the gospel that we need to meditate on. And so to, to apply this, to put on the armor of God, preach the gospel to yourself every single day from the fullness of the scriptures. Wherever you are in the Bible, make a beeline to the gospel and, 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 and ask God to help you see how what you're studying just expands the richness of the gospel in your mind and heart so that you can withstand the schemes of the devil. The gospel is the protection God has provided to us. And finally, God provides us with help. He doesn't just provide us with strength and protection, but with help. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You know, John Piper has said that followers of Jesus need to adopt a wartime mentality. And we've seen this morning that that's true. We are at war. And Piper says that in this war, prayer is what he calls our wartime walkie-talkie. In prayer, we call on God himself to act in our warfare against the kingdom of Satan. In prayer, we come to him admitting our weakness and leaning on his strength. In prayer, we call on the one who does all things according to the counsel of his will, who does whatever he pleases, whom no one can thwart, not even a legion of spiritual forces, and we plead with him to exalt his glory, keep his people, advance his gospel. And we're to do this at all times, constantly living for the presence of God, continually calling on his name in our weakness in the face of every attack. We are to pray, and why does Paul call us to pray? Why does God call us to pray? Because he will help. He will respond. He will act. He enters into battle on our behalf. Moses said after the Red Sea, the Lord is a warrior. He himself will fight for us. And we tap into that through prayer by asking God, fight for us, Lord. Help us. We are at war against a more powerful enemy then we can fight against. We need your help, and God helps us. He fights for us, and he calls us to pray. Church, that's not all. Not only does he call each one of us to pray to him as individuals, but he calls us to pray for one another in the spiritual warfare as his collective people. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the Lord is our help, but the church is also our help. And the church is our help as the church looks to the Lord on behalf of one another. As we pray for one another, God helps us all. We don't just pray for ourselves. We pray for our brothers and our sisters and, and even for the global church. All the saints, we are praying for the people of God. We stay alert because we are in a war. And we pray with perseverance to the God who is able and willing to fight for us. And so church, devote yourself to prayer. Pray continually. Start your day with prayer. Pray with your family. Pray with your spouse. Pray as you go. Pray when you are weak. Pray when you are tempted. 
Pray when you're about to be with unbelievers. Pray for one another. Pray with your discipleship groups. Pray with your home groups. Pray as you fall asleep at night. At all times, seek the Lord's help for yourself and for one another through prayer. Stand firm by utilizing these resources, the strength we have through Christ, protection through the gospel, help through prayer. These are the resources God has given us to stand firm against this enemy. Christ and the gospel and prayer in the spirit. Finally, we need to know the outcome. If we're going to stand firm in spiritual warfare, we need to know our enemy. We're opposed by the devil and all the spiritual forces of evil under him. They attack us in strategic, deceptive ways. We need, we need to know that. We need to know our resources, which we've just looked at. Prayer and the Word and being united to Jesus Christ through faith. But finally, church, if we're going to stand firm in spiritual warfare, we need to know the outcome. We need to know the outcome. This final point is based on the larger story of Scripture. This passage teaches us how to engage in the warfare. The whole Bible tells us what the outcome of this war is going to be. Listen, if you're in Christ, then you are in a spiritual war. And if you're in a spiritual war, then life in Christ will be difficult. It's going to be difficult. What will keep you from, to use the language of war, from going AWOL in this war when suffering comes? What will keep you from abandoning the faith when persecution comes? What will keep you saying no when temptation rises? What will keep you on the path of the cross when sacrifice is required? What will keep you going in this war? The answer is knowing the outcome, knowing that this war will not last forever, and knowing that you are on the winning side. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, God promised the outcome when he declared that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God promised the outcome at the very beginning of Scripture. Through the cross, God secured the outcome of this war by, by, by Christ dying for our sins and, and then being raised again, conquering death itself. And then in the vision of Revelation at the end of Scripture, God reveals the outcome by showing us Satan and his armies being thrown into the eternal lake of fire. That's the outcome, church. Right now, we are called to stand firm until that day. And this is important to get, church. Listen, Satan is our lifelong enemy. There's, there's not going to be a day where, where, where you feel spiritually attacked and you resist the devil and to, to such a point that he never comes back. No, he's going to come back. He's our lifelong enemy. Spiritual battles will continue in this age. There will not be a point where we conquer Satan in this age. We are called to stand Firm, to hold our ground, not to fall, to resist our spiritual enemy. But one day, he will be conquered. The battle will not last forever. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 16:20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's going to do it. God's going to do it under, under our feet. God will crush Satan. That, 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 is, that is applying the promise of Genesis 3, not just to Christ, but to us. And there's a day coming when, when we will be victorious over him. That will happen when Christ comes. I mean, Christ defeats Satan and defeats all his forces definitively forever and ever and establishes his new heaven and new earth. You know, Martin Luther says, the same thing in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
says the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, and that word is Jesus Christ. Jesus will defeat him. He will soon come and crush Satan under our feet. Until then, let's be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. Pray continually and stand firm until the day he returns. Let's pray.